Well, if you've been tracking with me uh, over the last several weeks, you know that we've been in a series that we've simply been calling Let's Talk About Sex. Let's Talk About Sex. And I have the privilege of concluding this series today. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from this series. And many of you have just thanked us for daring to talk about some of this very sensitive and necessary subject matter. And I appreciate that feedback. And I conclude that series today. Let me just say off the back, as we said each, each and every week throughout the series, that today I'm going to deal with some very mature subject matter. Uh, uh, subject matter that may not be suitable for young children, and I want to respect your um, wishes to, you know, determine the timeline to which you talk to your children about these. So if you have any small children in here that you'd like to take and check into the uh, children's church, that would be probably appropriate right now because I want the freedom to be able to talk about this subject matter uh, without having to skirt around things. So this is a PG-13 sort of rating on this, so we ask that you would keep that in mind as we move forward. Many people might ask, why talk about sex in church? Of all the things that you should be talking about, of all the sacred things, sacred issues that you can cover in church, why talk about sex? Well, I say over and over and over, especially throughout this series, that if we get our sex and sexuality right, there's a lot that will go right in our life. It's a major part of who we are, and to get this right means that we get a lot of other things right in our life. On the other hand, to get this wrong, to mismanage this and to mishandle this, really throws a wrench into our lives and really has an impact, significant negative impact on many other places in our lives. So it's very important that we talk about this. It's especially important that we talk about these issues through the lenses of faith, through the lenses of Scripture, and to give, our, give us all a biblical framework for our sex and our sexuality. Because this is such a, such a vast uh, subject matter, and we only have a few weeks to work through it, we've set forth some basic assumptions that we've been working with as we went throughout this series. And the first basic assumption that we walked through is that God has the final say. Okay? God has the final say in life. He especially has the final say as it relates to these very difficult, high-stakes matters in our life, uh, not the least of which is our sex and sexuality. We've also set forth that sex is a good thing, and not only feels good, but is a good God-designed thing, and it's supposed to be used for a certain purpose. It's not naughty, it's not deviant, unless you step outside of the bounds of what God has set it for. So sex is a good thing. We've also set forth the reality that there's a right way and a wrong way to manage your sexuality. There's nothing ambiguous about this, okay? You can get this right, and you can get it wrong. And finally, we've said that there's freedom, there's forgiveness and redemption for all manners of sexual brokenness and sin. And I think David did a fantastic job of exploring last week what it looks like to be healed and to begin to have some healing and some hope, especially as it relates to our sexual brokenness, right? All throughout this series, however, we have said, we've encouraged each and every person to develop a Christ-centered sexual ethic. In other words, your determination of what's right and what's wrong sexually need not, be need not be shaped by anything other than Christ and his word. Okay? Christ-centered sexual ethic. So we've talked about a lot of things. We've explored the ups and downs of this. Um, but there's still one burning question that remains. If you looked at the news in, the last, in recent months, and if you've just read the newspaper, and if you've had talks around the water cooler, you know, one of the hot-button issues has to deal with sex and sexuality. Many people are asking, especially Christians, well, what about homosexuality? 
What about the issue of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, gay marriage? What does the Bible have to say about that? What does Christ have to say about that? Where do the scriptures lead us as it relates to that? And let me just tell you, this is a huge, huge issue. And it's with great humility and great sensitivity that I tread in these waters today. I tap the minds of some of the people that I really respect, people who are far smarter than I am, who've done lots and lots of research on this. It's not lightly that I approach this subject. And I also realize that in our four-plus years of existing as a church, we've never devoted an entire Sunday morning to deal with this subject matter. But I also believe that there's no time greater than the present. Uh, to help God shape our understanding, our ethic, our opinions on this particular subject. And as I begin today, I want to encourage you to hear the entire message. I realize that we live in a culture that is full of sound bites, and we live in a gotcha culture that loves to hear one sentence and run with it, or learn to, love to hear one thing that you want to hear and check out, or one thing that upsets you and check out, either leave physically or leave in your heart. And I'm just, I'm just asking you, I'm begging you to stay with me for the whole thing, to hear me out. And as always, I'm open for dialogue, and if you feel like I've made an error or if you feel like I'm wrong, I, I would love that. I'd much rather you share that with me than you just sort of feel that in your heart. I also want to identify who my audience is today. My audience today are, you know, people who are dealing with this issue, people who are either out as a homosexual, living a gay lifestyle, those who are closeted, those who struggle with same-sex attraction and wondering what to make of all of this, as well as the the sold-out Christian who believes what the Bible says about this. Listen, my audience is everybody. So there's something in here for everybody. I want each and every person this morning to lean forward and hear what the word of the Lord would say today. This is a difficult subject matter. I just want to begin by inviting the Lord's presence as we work through this. So, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your truth, especially on matters and related to subjects that are difficult to manage, difficult to understand. They, they, they have tentacles all throughout culture and all throughout preferences and different orientations. Lord, and sometimes it's very hard to land on exactly what your word has to say about it, Lord. But we believe that you speak clearly and that you will, for those who lean into you and those who really want to understand your heart on these matters, Lord, you will speak to us and you will lead us and guide us. Lord, I pray that you will put power in these words. We come against any spirits of offense that would want to take root and cause anger or bitterness or any other negative feeling. Father, I just pray that you would just move me out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light would shine through. Lord, bring hope and healing today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's important that we begin at the right place when we start talking about something, especially something as as loaded as this subject. And the question I ask is, what's square one? In other words, where do we begin when we're dealing with such difficult subject matter? And I think any place uh, uh, for any uh, issue, specifically something as, as loaded as this, specifically something as controversial as this, I think we need to start with having a thoroughly converted Christian mind. I'll say that again. I think we need to start with having a thoroughly converted Christian mind. If you want to be confused, really confused, particularly as a Christian, try to tackle these difficult subjects on your own. Try to tackle these difficult subjects, bringing nothing to the table uh, but your preferences, what you've heard, what you've experienced, what you heard your Aunt Jacob say, right? 
you want to be really confused and really out of the box, just bring those few incomplete pieces to the table as you try to work through difficult subjects. But if you really want to get it right, if you really want to land on where the heart of God lands, it's very important that we have a thoroughly converted Christian mind. In other words, we see things, we process things, we work through this material through the, with the mind and with the heart of Christ. See, there's a danger that we all face, and that is when we view God and the Scriptures through the lenses of our experiences. We view God and we view all these other sorts of things through the lenses of our experiences, through the lenses of our likes, our preferences, our leanings as influenced by culture, pop culture, whatever, right? There's a huge danger in that. But what God demands is that we view our world or we have our worldview shaped by looking through the lenses of God's word and his design for our life. Let me put it a different way. It's a big mistake to take the lens of your experience and try to see life and see it clearly. And many of us, even when we pick up the scriptures, we're looking through glasses of our own experiences, our own preferences, and you're guaranteed to get it wrong. What God expects us to do is pick up lenses of, of a, biblical, uh, um, a biblical nature. We look through our world. We look through our issues. We look through problems and culture through the lenses of the Scripture to help us gain some clarity as to how we're supposed to decipher this stuff. But many of us go about it the wrong way, and we'll always get it wrong. We'll always get it wrong. So one of my favorite verses that I say all the time is Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Paul says this, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So Paul says, listen, give your whole self over to God. When you come into God's kingdom, don't reserve anything. Give it all over to him. He continues, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by doing what? Changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul says you don't, have a, you don't stand a chance at getting this right unless you submit your mind over to Christ. Unless you let Christ thoroughly convert your mind, you don't have a chance at seeing these issues right, weighing them properly, taking your emotions and your preferences out, laying them to the side. You don't have a chance unless Jesus can get a hold of your mind and put the mind of Christ in you and let you see these issues and see your world and see people through the lenses of faith, particularly the Christian faith. So a thoroughly converted Christian mind is what we need if we're going to really get anywhere on this issue. And one of the distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus is that they let Jesus get a hold of their minds. And as they process things, as they figure out where they stand on issues, they've let that be shaped by God's word. And one of the main ways that I know that you've allowed Jesus to really take over your mind and and that he's really in the works of things is that whenever we get to issues that are difficult, we lead with love. We lead with love. We lead with love. We want to figure out where to start. We lead with love. And I think we've really done this wrong because we want to lead with everything else. We want to lead with, okay, let's figure out what's right and wrong. Let's figure out who's on this side of the line and who's on that side of the line. We've started every place else other than where Jesus starts, and that's with love. Many of us have selective vision and selective hearing when we approach and examine God's nature and character. When we're dealing with our own sin... And our own brokenness is a place where we struggle. 
We see God as a loving God. Lord, shower down some of that mercy on me. Give me some more of that grace, that forbearance, that long-suffering. That's the type of God you are to me, especially when I'm in the thick and in the throes of my own sin and brokenness. But the tables turn when we're dealing with the brokenness of someone else, the sinfulness of someone else, as David pointed out last week. All of a sudden, we see God as this wrathful God, and we're just waiting on him to lay the smack down. We're counting down the strikes until the person is out. We have selective hearing, selective vision. We interpret God differently when he's dealing with us and when he's dealing with other people. But there's a problem because we haven't taken into effect and to, into consideration God's character and his very nature, which is expressed clearly through his love. We looked last week at John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. God's greatest expression of love, what he led with. All throughout history, look, Old and New Testament, God is lavishing his love on his people. Yeah, he's a God of wrath. Yes, he punishes those that sin. But the the, the overarching theme of the Bible and of Scripture is God's love for us. And the greatest expression of that was God's son, Jesus. And Jesus came not only to die for our sins, although that was a huge deal. What Jesus came to do was show us how to engage people who are on the other side of God's ethics. Jesus showed us, not through just his words, but his actions, how we deal with people who find themselves on the other side of God's commands, of God's principles, of the thing that God sets forth in his word. If you look at the gospel, they're full of encounters that Jesus had with people who were up to no good, who had it wrong, who were living backwards, who were living upside down as it related to how the scriptures prescribe that our lives should be lived. We looked at just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Zacchaeus, the wicked and despised tax collector, and how Jesus encounters him. David, just last week, uh, read the story of the woman caught in adultery. And how did Jesus engage these people? Did he walk up to them with the Bible out and say, listen, it says here that you're wrong, you're going to bust the gates of hell open, woe unto you? Absolutely not. Now, we're not painting Jesus as some soft character who doesn't know where he stands uh, when it comes to sin. We're talking, though, about a Savior that leads with love. And we're talking about a God who tells us that it's God's kindness, not his wrath, that leads us to repentance. You said, preacher, I thought we were talking about homosexuality today. What are you talking about? Are you giving us a lesson on Jesus and his love? Did you mix up your notes today? No, I want us to start at the right place today. Because if we start at the right place, then we can end at the right place. Jesus leads with love. And he engages these sinful people. And it's no, nobody's confused about whether they're sinful or not. Nobody's confused about, you know, whether or not they're guilty. Nonetheless, Jesus leads with love and respect with remarkable results. Remarkable results. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus commissions us as his disciples, we see in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and to make disciples. He speaks further at the beginning of Acts and says, listen, go into all the world, here, near, and far away, and be my witnesses. 
And Jesus says, pay forward what I've shown you. Do what I did. Love people the way I've loved them. That's square one for you. That's square one for you. Lead with love. Lead with compassion. Lead with mercy. Lead with understanding. But we've not done that as it relates to this issue. We've not done that as it relates to this issue. And I'm just here this morning to to issue an apology. I'll issue an apology. I I, I happen to work for the Lord. (laughs) I literally draw a paycheck from him for doing what I do. But all jokes aside, I really feel the need to issue an apology to those who've been hurt by the church on this particular issue. I apologize on behalf of the church because we've dropped the ball on this issue. I apologize because we've been too quiet on this subject. I apologize because we stood by silent while others have been beaten and tortured for coming out, for being gay. We've ignored the bullying that goes on in schools and on college campuses. We've told, we've laughed at, or even turned blind eyes to jokes or homophobic slurs. We've often mishandled those that really struggle with this issue, that are really trying to lean into Jesus, really trying to lean into Christian community. We've mishandled them. We've thrown them away. And on behalf of the Christian church, as a representative of the faith, I apologize to you, those who are here today, secretly struggling, knowing the pain of having been looked over and thrown aside. Those listening to my voice through the website or through the podcast who who know the pain of this struggle and know the pain that you've held, that, that you've experienced at the hands of those who claim to have the hope of heaven, I apologize to you. I apologize to you. And I vow that in this church it will be different. It will be different. So we, we, we clamp down, we crack down on the jokes that have a homophobic tone. The jokes that you say that are so funny that you get a quick laugh. The things that you say real quick in passing that really are funny in Christian circles and outside of Christian circles. We won't do that here. And I would, I would be happy if I never heard a, a gay slur in this church again. If you need me to name them, faggot, sissy, these types of things, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. And I won't be shy about talking to you about it if I hear it. We don't do that here. We have the hope of heaven. And if there's any place for a person to go where they struggle, it's through the doors of the church. It's into the arms of God's people. And I say, here, it must be different. It must be different. It must be different. And I'm deputizing you all to enforce this in love, obviously. Don't put your hands on anybody. We're going to come to blows. Come and get me. I'll deal with it diplomatically. But I'm serious about this. And I charge you to take this standard into your homes. You know, kids don't come out of the womb homophobic. They learn it from us. And it's not through sitting them down saying, listen, gay people are bad. Don't you hang out with them or you hate them. It's not through that direct type of discussion. It's through the things that they hear, the things that you laugh at, the things that you see on TV that you find funny in front of them. They pick that up from you. So I say among us, it must be different. 
I want to read for you a comment that was posted in a blog by one homosexual believer about his experience in the church. And let me just say, uh, by definition, homosexuality deals with uh, same-sex attraction and not so much the actual act. So when I say a homosexual believer, I'm saying somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, not necessarily somebody who is, you know, active in practicing a homosexual lifestyle. I just want to be clear about that. But this is his experience in the church. He writes, the purpose of me spilling this story, the most painful one I have, is to say this. We sit amongst you. We are people struggling with being gay, afraid of what their closest friends and family will say. We laugh at your homo jokes, and then we go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and hate what we see. We take a deep breath, and we go back inside. We tolerate churches designed around married couples, marriage conferences, and marriage sermons. Most of us can't come out. We risk losing the friendships that we so uh, that we have. So we'd rather dine on service relationships instead of having none. We long for someone to understand, to get it. It's not that they don't love me, regardless, because I'm not doing anything. I'm not at gay bars trolling the, or trolling the internet looking for someone. I'm not sinning in my sexual behavior. I came out to a friend of mine, and he looked down at the table, sullen and sad. And he said, everything must be really difficult for you. We sat there in silence for a while, and I thought, he gets it. The church will hug the man that cheated his wife for a year and shun the struggling gay guy who hasn't had sex in 10 years. Guaranteed. That's easy money, he says. And I burn every earthly possession I have, empty my bank accounts, quit my job, and terminate every relationship I have for a pill to change over in a heartbeat. I'd walk away from an unemployed, broke, but straight. But unlike my heroes of my youth, my secret identity clings to me, and I am forced to hide from what is called uh, to be the most loving, compassionate place on earth, the church. So here's what I ask. Be kind to us. We are looking for friends that listen and have compassion on us. We are not looking for you to understand us completely. We just want to go through our day not feeling like monsters. We run the risk of losing the people we value by coming out, but we must weigh that against being fake and pretending we are straight. I also ask that we cut out the gay bashing talk. I get that it's funny with you and your friends and it cuts to the quick, but I guarantee you've said it in front of us and we twist inside and we mourn inside. Be kind to us. We are broken and we need no more reminders. Isn't that a powerful story? about just how deep this issue cuts and how you thought you can spot a gay person. You thought you were being safe and you thought you were being sensitive in the presence of those, but they're among us, hiding, pretending, scared, are those who are just wondering if this place will be any different than the last place they were ran out of. What a bold and honest and candid Depiction of how this guy's witness, everybody else being embraced, the guy cheated on his wife, ran out on his kids, misused the money. Yeah, we'll welcome him back in. But the guy who's struggling and trying to figure this out, and the lady who's struggling and trying to settle this in her heart, just can't find a place to fit in in the Christian community. Something wrong with that, folks. There's something wrong with that. And all of that that we've read, what's the problem? Well, there's lots of problems, but the main problem is that somehow we've elevated certain sins or certain issues as far more significant or far more, you know, repulsive than others. That's the main problem. 
And my admonition to you today, uh, you know, obviously I said to lead with love, but the second one today is that we realize that sin is sin. Sin is sin. I said again, sin is sin. There seems to be this sentiment, mostly unspoken in the American church, that being gay or lesbian is the worst of all sins. And that's pretty ridiculous. I mean, it's widely embraced, but it's pretty ridiculous. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. How soon we forget that? How soon we forget that? Soon we elevate ourselves to this place of righteousness. When all the, well, we're, we're all the same. We're sinners. We just happen to deal with different stuff. There's different expressions of it. And there's a great danger in ranking sins, particularly humans doing that, right? There's a great danger, and I'm going to spell it out for you. Is that you will naturally put your stuff on the, it's not that bad list. Of things that you don't struggle with, or things that you don't wrestle with, or things that you've been freed from, you've gotten deliverance from, you no longer struggle with. Well, you know, we put those things on this list that, listen, you are going to hell on sight if you do this. God spoke to me in a dream, and he said, this was especially dastardly, and you don't have a chance. Not that we chuckle at that, but there's some, there's some reality in there. We understand that we do have this hierarchy of sins. You know, this is weighted really heavily because I really don't like people that do that. But the stuff we deal with, oh, Lord, I'm, Lord's not through with me yet. You know, I'm a work in progress. I ain't what I used to be. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because it's true. Well, you're a work in progress, but everybody else, is, they got to get, get right today. I was sitting in the church. I kid you not. Somebody told me this. I wouldn't believe him. But the preacher said, listen, you can come in here if you're a homosexual. He said, but you got three weeks. Said, three weeks, huh? Three weeks. He was a drug addict. He'd been slipping and sliding for 10 years. There's a danger in sort of categorizing these things. Especially when we're talking to church folks, these church folks don't mind certain sins. They don't. Church folks, they're okay with gluttony. They'll have a service three hours long, tear the whole church up, and go and like eat like seven plates of food and sleep for the rest of the day and repeat next week. We don't want to talk about gluttony. We don't want to talk about overeating and how we misuse our Bibles, our bodies, especially because a lot of preachers are husky and overweight, and it gets at where we live. And I told you several weeks ago, the Lord challenged me on that. He said, listen, you're not going to be a fat preacher. I told my wife, I said, listen, we, we're getting this thing going. We're working out with Mark and Curtis, and we've been running, exercising, watching them night. Listen, because this is serious, because I want the moral authority to stand up in here and talk about anything that God says talk about. I've been challenging others, uh, uh, people that are accountable to me, to say, listen, man, we've got to do something. What's your plan for getting on this? Why? Because these are one of these things that slip through the cracks. We don't mind people being uh, overweight and, and, and overeating. We don't mind that in the church. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to deal with that. Listen, we'll get to that somehow or other. We don't have a problem with greed in the church. Lots of folks have even worked it into their theological framework that it's okay to be greedy. Somehow God wants everybody to have a mansion and a half, a Cadillac or two. 
It's in the scriptures. It's in there somewhere. Find it. It's in there in the back. We've worked it into our theology. Greed. Covetousness. The pursuit of things that we don't need anyway. We've worked that into our theology. Spiritual pride. Wanting to be important in the church. Wanting to be revered. Listen, we don't, we don't mind that sort of stuff. That stuff can hang around. But homosexuality, boy, listen, you got three weeks. You got three weeks. And when we hear that spoken out loud, all of a sudden it's, it sounds really ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds very hypocritical, doesn't it? The sentiment is just ridiculous. And the scriptures remind us that all have sinned. All will sin because we're sinful and broken. We all need a Savior. And what I love the most about Jesus is the way that he makes all ground level beneath the cross. Isn't that something? The person who has exalted themselves higher than they're supposed to be, who thinks so much of themselves, Jesus will look up and say, what are you doing up there? Get down here. You don't belong up there. If anybody belongs up there, it's me. Get down here. Humble yourself before the cross. And he looks down at the person who's in the basement, either because they walked down there or because they've been kicked down there. And Jesus said, what are you doing down there? Get up here. Get up here. All ground is level beneath the cross. And when we take heaven's perspective of sin and our sinfulness and our brokenness, we dare not, we dare not elevate somebody else's sin or somebody else's issue or somebody else's struggle over ours, we dare not for shame. It's sinful. Because that's not our call to make. Listen, dealing with your own sin will keep you busy into the second that Jesus comes back. I guarantee it. Up to the second, you'll be dealing with it. Up to the second. Jesus levels the ground beneath the cross. And Jesus shows us a way to deal with this stuff. And rather than leading with judgment or tolerance or even intolerance, Jesus chooses to lead with love and respect. And part of loving people means that we speak the truth in love to them. We speak the truth in love to them as informed by the scriptures. Because where do we get God's truth from? We get God's truth from his word. So I've said we need to lead with, lead with love. We need to call sin, sin. And especially important is we need to embrace Scripture on this matter. We need to embrace Scripture on every matter, but we especially need to embrace it on these difficult subjects. These difficult subjects are difficult to navigate, these hot-button issues. The Scriptures need to be our authority on this. And the last thing we need to do is lean away from Scripture We need to lean into it and let it shape our thinking and our sexual ethic. And many people can't understand why this, why is same-sex attraction sinful when a person doesn't have the choice to be that way or not? And it seems to be impossible to change it. Why why is that sinful? Why is that same-sex attraction sinful? Well, first of all, same-sex attraction is not sinful in and of itself. In the same way that temptation is not sin. If you feel tempted to do something, that's not sinful, contrary to what many people think. It's not sinful at all. So the attraction is not the sin. It's, it's the action that's the sin. And as far as sexual orientation, it's, it's a fairly modern idea, and it's not really addressed in Scripture as it relates to particular sexual orientation. 
sexual attraction and those sorts of things. That's not really expressed in, in Scripture. But that happens to be one of the main hanging points as it relates to this issue. One of the main objections to the Christian or biblical perspective on this issue is, why am I on the hook for this if I was born this way? Why am I on the hook for this if I had no say in the matter as to how I would be wired and how my sexual attractions and my orientations would be formed? After all, I was born this way. Well, that's great debate about whether or not people are truly born that way. Some 20 or 30 years of research have yielded nothing concrete with regard to whether or not a person's born that way. In other words, there hasn't been discovered yet a gay gene, right? But many people believe that so much of who you are is shaped in your early years on this earth, years and instances and moments and experiences that you can't perhaps even remember, that it's very difficult to pinpoint what you acquired along the way and what you came with. I say that again. So much of who we are was shaped in those early days and months and years of our life that we don't even remember, that we don't have any, you know, memory or record of, that it's become very difficult to say with accuracy what we were born with and what we acquired once we got here. So much of who we are, our sexuality, our personality, our likes, our dislikes, our ethics, our worldview is shaped, listen, on the front end of life. That's why it's so important that we nurture our children from day, you know, minute one until they leave, you know, our care. Because all of that matters. So the jury's still out on whether or not people are born that way. So the scriptures don't speak definitively about that. But what the scripture is clear about is this, that homosexual acts are sin. When we look into the scripture, the scripture is clear that homosexual acts are clear. And there are many passages of scripture in the Bible, but today I just want to focus on five of them. And I just want to point out that four of them happen to be from the New Testament. I'm going to read these passages, and then I'm just going to pull a few things out. So the uh, five key passages, the first one is Leviticus chapter 18. I'll start at verse 20. Do not defy yourself by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Do not permit any of your children to be offered a sacrifice to Molech, for you must not bring shame on the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verse 22. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man, as with a woman, is a detestable sin. A man must not defile himself by having sex with an animal, and a woman must not offer herself to a male animal to have intercourse with. This is a perverse act. So I read all of that to show you that lumped in with the sexual immorality that they were forbidding is the act of homosexual sex. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the woman turned against the natural way to have sex Uh, to have sex and instead indulge in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves, Paul says. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I read that passage, those two verses, rather than just pulling out the homosexual thing, is to say, show you that lumps in the, in, in the sort of group of immoral things 
In there is this whole th- deal uh, of practicing homosexuality. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. Uh, we know that the law is good when used correctly, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or, or slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Again, Paul, he lumps it in there again, sexual immorality, immorality in general. There's no confusion about this. And finally, Jude chapter 1, verse 7, and don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah, that famous Sodom and Gomorrah, and their neighboring towns which were filled with immorality, sexual immorality, and every kind of sexual perversion. And those cities were destroyed by fire and served as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Now get this, a friend of mine says that best when he says this, any serious follower of Jesus has to deal with these verses and deal with them head on. Any serious follower of Jesus is trying to make any headroom, any headway on this issue, trying to figure out what the mind and the heart of God, where it settles on this issue, we got to do some serious business with these verses. And when you look at these verses and when you look at other verses like that, we should all agree that the scriptures are not ambiguous about whether or not homosexual sin is unethical or is, in, or is it immoral in God's eyes. So as much love and compassion as we must show toward those who are struggling with any sin, especially this sin, we cannot and we will not relax God's standard that he sets on this issue. We stand to lose too much. He drew the plans up a certain way. He's the architect of our lives, the architect of our sexuality. He drew things up this way for a very specific reason. And if you want to do business with God, you got to do business with the scriptures. And the scriptures are very clear as it relates to this. Scriptures are very black and white. And why does God prohibit this? Why? Because homosexual acts run against the grain of God's design for sexual intimacy, which by design is for man and a woman. Homosexual sin is not what God had in mind. It's not God's best. And on this particular issue, and many like it, we need to let God, through Scripture, shape our sexual ethic on this issue and not for culture. We let God do it and not the culture. And it's hard to do. That's hard to do, man. Because we know people, we love people, good people, who are just on the wrong side of this thing as it relates to God's ethic, as it relates to God's design for this. And so much cultural pressure to bend and to break and to say, well, like David said last week, did God really say that? I mean, did he mean that? I mean, when are they going to update that book? Because it's, it's really, you know, when is the new version coming out? Because I'm sure in the new version, they'll have, you know, an appendix that, you know, makes this all okay. Well, there's no new book coming out. And if there is a new book coming out, you can use it to make that table that's, you know, not level. You can use it for that. Because it won't be worth the paper it was printed on. 
God's not updating his book. He's not changing the standard. Because his design for men and women and our lives will not change. It will not change. I think it's important to mention also that just as God is glorified uh, in our sex and sexuality, God is also glorified in our celibacy. Can I say that? For those of us who are struggling, uh, whether you're single and you have a reason to be celibate or you struggle with this issue and, you know, just God commands you to die to that part of yourself and to be celibate, just as God glories in us using our bodies within the context of marriage for, for sexual fulfillment and intimacy, God glories in those of us who will say, you know what, I will not engage in sex outside of the fence that God builds around it. God glories in that. He gets honor in that. There's no shame or condemnation. Is it hard? Yes. I can imagine what it must be like to live with that. It fosters a great deal of compassion, care, sensitivity within me. But God's standard is God's standard. God's standard is God's standard. And I think it's important for us to also understand that this doesn't mean it's us versus them. I hope I've been clear about that up until now. But when we start getting to the scripture part, of the, you know, the first half of the sermon seemed like, yeah, we can all work together. We can come to some mutually satisfying place on this where we can all just sort of get what we want until I start talking about the scriptures, until I started talking about how black and white this thing is. And you say, preacher, that sounds like you're drawing a pretty serious line in the sign, you, you know, sort of making it us against them. It's not us against them. And I'm not drawing a line. I'm simply pointing it out. You know, I didn't write this stuff. I wish I could take credit for, well, not this stuff. I, I don't want any credit for this stuff. But I didn't write this stuff, man. I didn't draw the line, and it's not mine to erase. I didn't draw the line or I didn't build the fence so it's not mine to take down, you understand. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's an us against them deal. And I think much of the pressure that we receive from our culture puts pressure on us to say, listen, either love us and hate the scripture or hate, this, hate us and love the scripture. Like, pick one of those. Like, if you don't want to embrace this thing that we call love, if you don't want to embrace this lifestyle, then, you know, you hate us. You're intolerant. That's not the love of, you know, that's not the love of God. And I won't bend to that type of pressure because that's not what I'm about. I'm a lover of people. That's what I've been put on this earth to do. And just because I love you doesn't mean I have to love what you're mixed up in. Just because you love me don't mean you have to love and accept my vices. No matter how you came by those things. So it's not us versus them. It's not us versus them. In fact, I'm fond of asking people. I'm often asked about this issue. And sometimes it's like a confrontation. Hey, preacher, well, what do you think about same-sex marriage? What do you think about homosexuality? And I've just grown accustomed to saying, listen, first of all, is there, any, is there any room for us to disagree on this and still be cool? I want to know that up front. Because for most people, they would answer no if they answer honestly. Listen, we don't need to talk about this. If we can't, you know, we can't come to a place where we can agree to disagree and still love one another, still respect one another. If you're looking for a fight, you won't get one with me. 
Again, we live in a gotcha culture, and the last thing I need is for somebody to have a soundbite from the preacher of the South Suburban Vineyard just lifted out of context in the newspaper. I, I'm not interested in, in falling into that trap. And it's a helpful uh, suggestion for you to say, if somebody wants to talk about this, say, listen, before we talk about this, is there any room for us to disagree here? Uh, will there be any respect left if I don't agree with you, if I don't espouse your views, if I don't, you know, respect your viewpoints, is there any room for us to still be okay? That's a very important question. And if somebody told me no, I would say, well, let's not talk about this. Let's talk about the bears or let's talk about something else. Now, not this. Because it's not us versus them. I love you. My God commands me to do so. You were required to love me. It doesn't mean you have to go along with everything that I want you to go along with. It doesn't mean I have to go along with what you're, what you're, what you're, what you're trying to sell me. It doesn't mean I won't go for it. I won't do it. So it's not us versus them. How to wrap this all up? What's the big picture? What's the big picture here? And worship team, you can come up. The big picture is this, is that God has a lot to say, both directly and indirectly, about this issue. He has a lot to say. If you've got eyes to see it and ears to hear it, there's plenty that God has to say. And the first thing that he seems to be calling my attention to, calling our attention to, is the commandment, or should I say the new commandment that he gives us to love, not just how we've, you know, we've been loved or by other people, but to love others the way God loved us. Jesus told us, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love like I've loved you. Deal with each other in love. Don't let somebody's issue define them. Don't let somebody's junk be the face of that person. Lead with love. Seek to listen, to understand. Lead with love. Show people through your words and deeds that we love and care about them. Listen to them. Try hard to understand. It's necessary on this complex and difficult issue. We also need to understand that sin is sin. Sin is sin. And if we're operating on the level playing field that is the cross of Jesus Christ, then we've got no room to judge anybody else. We've got no room to judge anybody else. We aren't putting our sins beneath somebody else's and exalting somebody else's. Sin is sin, and we all come humbly before the Father, and we all humbly do business with each other, and that's where, that's where the real magic of community happens. We humbly understand that nobody's better than anybody else. And finally, when we embrace Scripture, we say, God, you are the authority. Your word has plenty to say about this. I'm going to shape my worldview. I'm going to shape my life. I'm going to wrap my stuff around your stuff and see where we land. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to do that. And some of you have family. You have close friends. That's going to be really hard for you to take a stand on this issue. It's going to be really hard for, the, for you to answer them honestly when they say, hey, what do you think about this issue? You go to church. And Margaret, what do you think about this? You're a follower of Jesus. Well, what do you say about this? What does God think about it? It's going to take some courage, man, to talk about this and to present righteous truth and to do so in love. It's going to take some courage. But guess what? Jesus calls us to be his witnesses, not just on the good stuff that's easy to hear, 
but on this difficult stuff. Now, people might walk out of the room while you're talking. They might storm away from you. They might delete you off of their Facebook. They might delete your number out of their phone because you took a stand for righteous truth. That, listen, that, that may happen. But we let Jesus, in, you know, our leaning into Scripture shape our worldview, our sexual advocacy. It's got to happen, folks. So as we worship today, my prayer for us all is that the Holy Spirit would just fill us. And it's the spirit, same spirit that testifies to the nature and the character of, of, of God and of Christ would just, just form our hearts on this issue. That would fill us with love and compassion. That would get rid of all pride and selfishness. And would drive us to the feet of Jesus. And Lord, help us with this issue. Help us with the relationships. Help us with the people in our world that struggle with this. God, help us. That's my prayer for us as we worship. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much, Lord, for uh, the reality that you don't leave us groping around in the dark trying to figure out where you stand on these things. You speak clearly to us. Lord, I just pray that you would fill us with your love. Lord, fill us with your boldness. Give us strength and courage to navigate these choppy waters. Lord, for those of us who are in here today, Lord, who are secretly struggling with these issues, Father, I just pray that you would just bring your your spirit, bring your power. Lord, I pray where people are wrestling with hurts and they've been hurt by the church and hurt by words that have been spoken and jokes that have been uttered and just the indifference that we tend to have toward them, Father, I just pray that you would bring healing right now. Healing in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray specifically for for those of us, Lord, we represent you, Lord. Would you you call us to always, always fall on the right side of this line? Always, no matter what's at stake, Lord, to land on this where you land. Lord, would you go before us, even to conversations that we need to have? Would you just make some crooked places straight? Would you prepare people's hearts to receive and to hear, Lord, what you've called us to speak to them on this particular issue. Lord, and as we worship you today, Lord, would you just give us every single thing that we need? Every single thing that we need. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.